Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. We can't leave yet. I've still got one last job to do. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm still Brian. Hi. Today's episode is A Host of Sorrows, our sixth episode on the third Metal Gear Solid title, Snake Eater. Today, we will be covering Colonel Volgan and the boss, as well as their grisly and or tragic ends. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. Major, I finished planting the C3. I'm on my way out now. Hurry, Snake. Is Eva taking care of the escape route? Yeah. Are you sure? She can handle it. All right, then. We'll hurry up and get out of there. Last episode ended with Snake planting some C3 on liquid fuel tanks in the Shagohod's hangar, hoping to destroy it before Volgan could unleash it on the world. We'll pick up right there, as the plan was for Snake to meet Eva and get out of the blast radius. But Snake hardly turns the corner before he bumps into Volgan and Ocelot with Eva laying at their feet. Snake doesn't even get a second to react. Immediately, the boss is on him, disarming him and throwing him down. Again, like last time, Snake holds his own a little bit longer against the boss, almost getting in a couple shots during the scuffle. Snake is a temporary captive, which makes this a good time for the game to dump some exposition on us. Eva was caught in the underground vault with the Philosopher's Legacy on her. Technically, it's a microfilm that details the locations and accounts that compromise half of the legacy, but for MacGuffin's sake, we're just going to call it the legacy for short. Volgan pegs her as the traitor working for Khrushchev, thanks to Ocelot's nose and him smelling motorcycle oil on her person. Snake presses Volgan on the legacy, and Volgan gives the Bond villain explains his nefarious scheme homage, as, as was the style at the time. A lot of it concerns the legacy, which we covered last time out. Volgan also reveals his bigger plans to mass produce and distribute the Shagohat to revolutionaries across the world. More on this momentarily. The boss says she'll take care of Eva and warns Volgan of a likely C3 plot by Snake. When she picks up Eva, though, she whispers that she'll take care of everything, which turns Eva's head. This is the boss starting to execute the final part of her mission, which requires Eva and Snake. They leave as Volgan and Naked Snake prepare to show down. The boss tells Volgan to fight like a warrior. No need to tell Snake. She knows he will. And this time gives Ocelot a knowing look right in the eyes. She leaves, and that's our cue to do the vaunted Podcast Sans Frontieras character breakdown of one Colonel Volgan. Kuwabara, Kuwabara. Yevgeny Borosovich Volgan, voiced by Neil Ross. Colonel Volgan is as clear-cut a villain as exists in this game, or honestly, in any Metal Gear Solid title. He's villain-coded, as the Tumblr teens would say. <laughs> He's large, scarred, superhumanly strong. He delights in torture and sadism, and kills in quantity without remorse. He laughs at his own atrocities, he literally nukes his own countrymen, and takes his pleasures, sexual and otherwise, wherever he can get them. I do think this is a conscious choice. 
with the much more complicated stories ongoing with The Boss, Eva, and Ocelot, not to mention Naked Snake unraveling it all, having an unapologetic villain at the center of this narrative really helps provide a steady anchor. And Kojima and Tomokazu Fukushima are free to dial it up to 11 with Volgan without it ever straining Metal Gear credulity. Volgan's name itself is fairly common. Volgan is a surname derived from the Volga River, and Yevgeny is the Slavic equivalent of Eugene, which is a way to smuggle in the meme of Gene here in maybe the only MGS game that doesn't heavily discuss genetics. The commonality of Volgan's name may be a parallel to Big Boss's John Doe, which I'll get back to in a minute. We in the West may know him as Thunderbolt, though. A funny line from Sokolov that can really only refer to his powers— Volgan seems to be coursing with electricity that he can harness and weaponize. He uses it not only to wield lightning, but shoot bullets from his hands and enhance his physical strength. While the other bosses so far have had some supernatural powers, Volgan seems to be a full level above with elemental powers. Think of it like he's Magneto, while the Cobras were the brotherhood of evil mutants. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my segue into talking more Marvel and visual design. Volgan looks a hell of a lot like Cable, a.k.a. Nathaniel Summers, who has a continuity to surpass Metal Gear. Gray-haired, scarred in the face, with a muscular, almost superhuman build. Yeah, that checks the boxes for me. Of course, uh, Volgan's lightning powers are pretty similar to Max Dillon, a.k.a. the Spider-Man villain Electro. Oh, and I didn't want to miss Volgan's catchphrase, Kuwabara, Kuwabara, which is a Japanese phrase uttered to ward off lightning. Also, kind of how, like, we say knock on wood. Volgan mutters this phrase when it starts to rain on the bridge during Virtuous Mission, and again when it drizzles on the docks. He does not say it, however, during the final showdown on the Shagohad when he is, of course, struck by lightning and killed. In air quotes. Yes. <laughs> Kuwabara itself translates to mulberry field, and there's an apocryphal Chinese legend that says mulberry trees don't get struck by lightning, though this has been refuted, however. So we can dive into the fictional history of one Colonel Volgan, he was born during the early 1900s. His father managed funds for the philosophers, which is how he basically gets drawn into this larger narrative. And he was also a boxing champion as a youth. He worked in the secret police, uh, the NKVD of the Red Army. He was implicated in several massacres and war crimes with a growing reputation of brutality. Um, but he was used to put down anti-communist activity in East Germany and Hungary. So, you know, he's kind of good. And then, of course, um, he inherited the legacy following his father's death, and that's when he started planning with uh, Leonid Brezhnev and Alexei Koskin, which are, again, real-life people who existed, and he would build Groznygrad with the funds of the legacy. He hired Granin originally for research, but he would later bring in Sokolov to work and complete the Shagohad, and part of this was also to take Sokolov away from Khrushchev, who was his pet scientist. And then he also took Ivan Rydanovich Rykov as a lover, which makes Volgan canonically bisexual. And bisexual in a way where you actually see it somewhat on screen, as opposed to, say, Loki, where they just kind of say it, but you'll never see him have sex with a man ever. Um, which also means that, that Volgan is a bisexual communist anarchist, which makes him uh, cool, actually. Yeah. Volgan was right all along. No. <laughs> Yeah, I got to uh, go back and edit out that whole clear-coded villain thing because I think <laughs> I think Volgan's actually the best character in all of the canon. He's a true hero. He's a true poster and a true hero. <laughs> um, of course, we can't discuss Volgan without talking about his fictional future as well. 
Um, first of all, when Snake kills, uh, quote unquote, kills uh, Volgan at the end, um, he's actually becomes a hero for defeating Volgan, who was not very well liked within his own country. But they did maintain Volgan's body for research because, again, he has some supernatural abilities that they would want to harvest. So he was kept alive in a permanent coma state, like we'll see done to, you know, other characters in this uh, saga. So canonically, he never died, but I kind of like a little supernatural in my Metal Gear Solid, so I actually like to think he came back to life um, preceding the events of Metal Gear Solid V, uh, where 20 years later he would reanimate as the man on fire. And you get... I don't know if it was foreshadowing per se, but it works nicely in the fact that his clothes burn off when you first uh, face him in a hand-to-hand combat. And then when he dies, he also burns up again. So kind of linking um, the fire and the electricity, even though anyone who knows Avatar The Last Airbender is that lightning is beyond, you know, it's like the highest form of fire instead of the other way around. In terms of themes and concepts, what I really like to look at with Volgan is how he is a proto-big boss. Um, he speaks of unifying the world with the power of the Shagohad. Um, he talks about building a place where soldiers are valued most of all. And, you know, what Volgan does here is he basically builds his own base, builds his own base of loyal soldiers, and conspires to turn the course of history with his nuclear doomsday device, which is essentially what Big Boss will be doing from here on out in the canonical Metal Gear Solid games. And then, of course, there's that um, aforementioned fact that, you know, his name, Volgan, is basically as ordinary as John Doe, and that he was held in a permanent coma, which we'll find out in Metal Gear Solid 4 was Big Boss's fate following the events of Metal Gear 2, Solid Snake on the MSX. I do want to say that the the fun thing about comparing him directly to Big Boss is that, unlike Big Boss, he doesn't have, like, he is he is kind of a forceful personality, but he doesn't have the magnetism that draws people to him. He just sort of buys loyalty through just sheer domineering force of will on like the the, the explicit uh, manufacturing of power and like the me- mechanisms of power. He's not like a charismatic leader like Big Boss is, always is. I was just going to say, or the boss. Yeah, or the boss. Yeah, but Big Boss in particular, if you're making that comparison, Big Boss, you could never have a game about Vulgan, like you could never have a Peace Walker style game where Vulgan just roams the countryside and makes friends with everyone and draws in a huge following just through being cool, basically. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, everyone seems to just fucking despise Volgan in this game. Like the way that the way you know that Ocelot and Eva and the boss and obviously uh, Volgan is sexually abusing Eva. So, of course, she like hates him, but everyone pretty much hates him. But he clearly is just, you know, that strong, both, you know, physically and as a force of will, like you say. Um, which, again, I think plays into that unrepentant villain thing. Um, there's really nothing, you know, he's not one of those relatable villains that are so in vogue these days. Um, although, again, he is a bisexual, you know, anarchist communist. So who knows? <laughs> um, even like, I think, but even compared to like Solidus, who I think is the most, looks most like him, like physically the mm-hmm. most similar looking of any villains. He's not even like Solidus is a somewhat sympathetic and and as we talked about, like he's, there's something about Solidus that's vaguely heroic or Vulcan's just like an asshole. <laughs> yeah. That's the best way to describe him. He's just an asshole. Yeah. He's great. He's, it makes him a great character to, to want to kill. So let's get to wanting to kill him and we'll start discussing the boss fight. Uh, this is a timed boss fight. Um, during the previous cutscenes, the sor- the sorrow would show you a timer of the C3 explosion countdown. Um, although in the cutscenes, it's very much not real time because like, you know, 
the timer is like five minutes, but or like ten minutes during the cutscenes. But the yeah. uh, exposition about the legacy and Volgan's past goes well beyond that. So I uh, just wanted to get that cleared up. But anyway, so you get five minutes against Volgan. It's kind of broken up into two parts. Um, it starts off with Ocelot giving you back your gun and knife to start the battle. Um, and then about halfway through, after you get Volgan's life um, about halfway down, Volgan will tell Ocelot to shoot Snake because he's kind of getting his ass kicked. But Ocelot refuses, is insubordinate, uh, doesn't use uh, Volgan's title when addressing him. And he, you know, he does some hand gestures to Snake. And Volgan starts shooting lightning at Ocelot. And Ocelot shoots his gun to stop the lightning or draw the electricity away from him. Um, it's all a very nutso scene right in the middle of this like big boss fight, which is kind of fun. So let's look at some of uh, Volgan's maneuvers in this boss battle. So the first is he has a couple bullet blast attacks, one for each half of the battle. In the first half, he kind of shoots bullets at a straight line, almost like he was just shooting them out of his wrist. And in the second half, he has this like bullet explosion where um, he'll basically charge up and shoot bullets out in every which direction. Which sucks. I hate, I hate that one. Yeah, it's it's a pain as opposed to the pain. He also has uh, electricity blasts that he uses. Um, usually in the first half, it's more just a lightning bolt that's trying to reach out and get you. And in the second half, he's able to kind of let it roll on the floor so you actually have to avoid it um, beyond just, you know, kind of running away from him. And then uh, last of all, he will charge you like full on, you know, try to shoulder you and kind of not quite CQC you, but do that kind of close quarters combat which i guess is cqc but you know he's not doing what the boss and snake are doing but he will try to get in and kind of brawl with you because he is that boxer and his biggest defense is the fact that he cannot be shot from the front because you know electricity prevents you from being shot in the front but not the back or something like that there's a bunch of little things i like in this fight did you ever um use the rykov mask in it I have not used the Rykov mask. He, you, he basically is stunned, and you basically get a free... You can do a free CQC combo on him, and then he gets up and dropkicks you out of anger. He's so mad, he pulls off a perfect Tokata-style dropkick right in your face. Oh, that's great. Which uh, it does a shitload of damage, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, you can get a free combo in on him, and then you have to try to avoid his attacks, which is great. I think you can use the frogs. I think you can use anything you have that absorbs electricity. You can use like the, the mushrooms and stuff on him. And they just like absorb attacks. Yeah. Um, the Russian glow caps are the one you're talking about. Yeah. And I think you can, you mostly get those when you're in the cave. Yeah. Um, right before the, before and after the pain fight. So you would have had to held on to those, but yeah, th those are very uh, useful for absorbing that. Um, I think uh, this is also where you can use your chaff grenade, which is a weapon you get in this game, but is not something, Yeah. But at least me personally, I really never use the chaff grenade in MGS3, despite it being a staple of my MGS1 and 2. Um, you almost have to use it in MGS1 for sure at certain yeah, points. Yeah, for cameras at, at least. And then MGS2 is, you know, you, you don't need it, but it is definitely very useful, especially on some of the big shell outer uh, levels with the drones and the ciphers and stuff like that. Oh, of course, you can kill Ocelot also. Oh, yeah. You can, uh, if you decide to uh, not shoot at Volgan, but shoot at Ocelot, you can kill him and you'll go into an instant game over slash time paradox. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's a fun, it's a good little fight. I like the setup, like we're going to talk about in a second, but I, I like that it's it's maybe the most, aside from maybe the pain, it's the most just like boss fight setup in the game. Mm -hmm. 
it almost feels like a Tekken arena or something like that. Yeah. And then uh, just to cover a couple more tactics before uh, we get into that arena, um, to avoid his bullet attacks, the first one, uh, you just kind of run in a straight line, the one when he's shooting out of the wrist. The bullet explosion, which is much more pain in the ass to avoid, um, you kind of have to just lay down and hope the timing and distance is good on that. And then to avoid his electrical attacks, you can unequip uh, your gun so there's like no quote-unquote metal on you for it to draw the electricity and then uh, generally, I use a lot of CQC. And then when he's thrown down on the ground, I pop him with a couple of train shots. Um, and that's usually the way I go about taking him on. You got to mix some CQC in there. It's just fun. Yeah. He really hates it. Yeah. What is that? Some kind of judo? Yeah. <laughs> but and uh, what's it called? He's also charging you quite a bit. Um, so, you know, when he does close on you, it takes off some of the bigger, uh, stronger guns and weapons off the table because it's just... Not as wieldy. That's the whole point of CQC, really. Yeah. And as Brian described, um, there's this uh, the boss arena is just a like a pit in the main Chagohad hangar, and it kind of lowers down so that the you know regular level becomes a catwalk, and that's where Ocelot is observing from. And it's kind of like a boxing or wrestling ring as well, which would probably play into you know Vulcan's past as a boxer, but also just like, hey, get me some you know prisoners or something. I'm just going to beat the shit out of them in my little boxing ring. Um, I can imagine him doing something like that. Um, the backdrop is also lots of wires, conduits, electrical boards, and circuits. Obviously, Vulcan has this whole electricity motif going on, uh, so makes sense. But you can also see uh, water pipes, uh, red water pipes that can be uh, used to douse Vulcan and stop his uh, electricity powers, which will be, again, very similar to what you do to the man on fire in Metal Gear Solid Five. I think you can also um, ricochet bullets off the catwalk or off of more than one thing. You can hit him in like the back. Oh, nice. I did not know that one. I think you can do that because I, I remember that's the thing that Ocelot, Ocelot will comment on it. He was always like, yeah, good one or nice. He loves it. Ocelot loves whatever. Anything you do that's, that hurts Vulcan, he's he's a fan of, which is great. Yeah. One of my favorite little bits in the game. Yeah. I, everyone hates Vulcan. It's, it's great. And then, of course, the last thing we like to cover with these boss fights is the camo you get if you beat him non-lethally. And this one is the Cold War camo, which is a Soviet hammer and sickle in front on a red field. And the entire back is the American flag. And the idea behind this camo is that um, if a soldier is facing you and sees the Soviet uh, side of your uniform, they won't even bother you at all. And if they see you from the back with the uh, American flag, they'll uh, you know just start shooting right away, not even investigate or see who you are. And it's actually uh, the camo I see most often used in like YouTube tutorials, like if you uh, videos that are showing people how to do CQC and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a great way just to like be able to like go in a map and kind of go up to soldiers and experiment without, you know, setting off alerts and stuff. And then also it's very useful during the upcoming uh, speeder bike or I don't know if speeder bike, sorry, term, motor motorcycle chase because for the most part you're you know driving away yeah. and all the enemies are, are behind you. So if you have the Cold War camo on and are facing them, um, they're not really trying to shoot at you, which makes it a whole heck of a lot easier. We'll save the Volgan Chagohad fight for later. Snake leaves a downed Volgan as he begins his escape. The bomb sensors have started going off in Groznygrad as everyone is evacuating and the whole place is about to blow. Ocelot who had left for the second half of the showdown with Vulgan, peeps Snake making a break for it. Outside, Snake finds Eva unexpectedly. 
She reveals that not only did the boss let her go, but the boss is waiting for Snake at the lake, where Eva had stashed an escape vehicle. Snake doesn't understand. He has to kill the boss, so why is she conveniently waiting for him? No time to ponder that, though. Out of the flaming wreckage of Groznygrad emerges the Shagohad, piloted by Volgan, naturally. We begin the first of two rail shooter segments where Eva drives her bike with Snake gunning from the sidecar. Ocelot will hop on his own bike and harangue you throughout the final portions of the game. So the first set of maps here are kind of around Groznygrad, and you're working through some of the maps you used for infiltrating the base, though I think there are some new areas here too. Um, you're basically just taking out soldiers as you go, and uh, occasionally Eva will stop and you'll have to clear the field or at least take out enough guards to move on to the next part. And all while this is happening, the Shagohad will be stomping around. It's not really a threat to you, but it is pretty cool to just, you know, have as background and to show what, you know, how many things are going on while you're, you know, trying to make this epic ex escape, so to speak. Following that, you kind of cut through the interior of the Grozny Grad hangar, um, and you do this with Ocelot in pursuit, and there's this pretty cool moment, a little bit anime, because it doesn't really make sense, um, but where there's like falling debris, and Snake takes out his, his RPG and shoots it just enough so that him and Eva can pass through, but it holds up Ocelot, and they're able to uh, put some distance between them and him. The next bit is on the runway outside again, and here we see Volgan with the Shagohad stomping around, running down his own men, uh, running over helicopters that are parked and planes and all that. He has, uh, it's wanton destruction, and he has no regard for any of it. And at this point, you start being pursued by uh, soldiers on bikes, and those bikes have sidecars. And uh, to, you know, get through the section, you're given infinite ammo. Um, as you, uh, no matter what weapon you use, um, you will have infinite ammo to uh, take out all the oncoming guards and the Shagohad. It's really impressive. Like for 2004, the amount of, I know it's scripted destruction, but it's still impressive that it was able, they're able to pull that off on the PS2 or PS2 architecture. Like it looked great. It still looks good. It, it looks really like a, an exciting sequence. Yeah. I, for some reason, I just because maybe I think of the boss fight as the big thing, and I'm like, uh, you know, maybe this overstays its welcome, or this isn't as cool as I thought. But I'm, I was actually really impressed, and I was really caught up in it. Like, it's pretty tense, it's fast moving, and it still looks great. Um, and for all the things, like you said, that are going on on screen at the time, including your own player input and all that, it's it, it's actually one of the best Metal Gear Solid set pieces if you like take out like a normal boss fight or stealth sequence. Mm -hmm. um, I think it is uh, one of the best set pieces. And then the Shagohad will engage its rocket boosters and it'll be literally right on top of you, which is another thing I like is just the speed of it and how it goes from the back, you know, the background on the screen and just kind of shoots up and is right on Snake and Eva. It just looks cool and the kinetic feeling of it is just very energizing and tense well one of the reasons i i think the shagohad is my favorite metal gear in general is that they don't a lot of them talk about they spend a lot of time talking about how advanced they are and how but like when you fight them they're just big robots that jump that don't they just like stop around they don't like the way they talk about metal gear rate shouldn't be physically possible for one person to defeat one never mind like 12 mm -hmm. but it just kind of sucks like it's maybe it's not designed to fight you know infantry but still Whereas I think everything they talk about the Shagohad doing except for launching its missile, it does in the fight. Like, it's very maneuverable. It's super fast. It has its rockets. 
and it has all its defense guns on it. Like it's just it's a cool piece of tech. And I think that the sixties like aesthetic really helps it too, because it looks I mean it's it's an implausible vehicle. Like it wouldn't be able to move in real life, but it's less implausible than some of the Metal Gears end up being. And I think I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah, because I mean Literally, Metal Gear Ray is part kaiju at points where it's kind of yeah. floating and whipping its tail. And I mean, obviously, they kind of explain it and the technology is all make believe. So it's not a big deal. But um, the Shagohot definitely feels grounded, but also more effective in a way. And I think that really comes through. And I think, yeah, it helps that it's kind of built around a 60s idea of a super tank as opposed to um, the Metal Gear idea that was just, you know, Kojima carrying on that meme from his first and second title, essentially. Yeah. And, um, you know, I like to play these sequences non-lethally, or I mean, these games non-lethally. Um, I would prefer to use, you know, real weapons for these sequences, but I still end up using mostly the Mark 22 and occasionally some stun grenades. I've read online that you can use whatever weapons during this point and it won't count towards your kill count, but... When you're this far into the game, I've never really been willing to risk it. Yeah. Um, I didn't pain through uh, going non-lethal on the Fury just to kind of blow it, you know, on this sequence where it's, you know, it has some, you know, tenseness to it, but I wouldn't say it's difficult. I don't think I've ever really got to the point where I died during the sequence, no. you know, it, regardless of how many guards I'm taking out. Um, and then lethally, I would say, you know, I go to town with the M9 machine gun or RPG. The RPG, you do have to reload after each. Um, shot, but uh, this is a great spot for using both of those weapons. I would say the mission and the machine gun. Of course, you get Snake's famous scream, his like war yell he does out, which he'll just do as long as you keep holding the trigger. It's it's very funny. Yeah, I think the first time I realized that that's what happened, I was like, "Whoa, that's that's cool." <laughs> um, and I I want my uh my protagonist to uh, yell when he's holding a machine gun that's almost you know too big for him, so to speak. And then we get to the last sequence, which is the rail bridge. Uh, rail bridge, sorry. Um, Eva puts a you know little spin move on the Shagohod and makes a break for it and puts some distance between them. And then this is the bridge that Eva had wired with the own with her own C three that she had kept um, when she was handing some out to Snake. So at this point, you have to wait for the Shagohod to arrive on the bridge, and then you need to snipe the C three detonators, which are located under it. Um, after you take out the first one, I don't know if it, so there's two to take out. I think if you take out one on the right first, um, it jars loose a little steel beam that makes shooting the second one a little harder. I might have the order reversed, but I think it only works on one of them. That'll make the second one harder. So I think there is like a better order, quote unquote, to take the two detonators out. Um, but you as the player actually get to do the sniping. So you take out the two detonators when the Shagohot arrives and then the bridge will go and Eva will say, we did it. It's over. Look! Running away anyway. 
Eva. Let's do it. So I'm sure you got the gist of what's going on in that sound clip, but I really like to highlight it just because I really love how it's shot and directed with um, the Shagohaut down on the bridge, but you slowly start to see the Shagohaut turbines turning, and then it cuts to just Volgan's smile, like not his entire face, but you just see a little smile crack on his face, and then the Shagohaut shoots into the air. Um, it kind of has a little slow-mo at the top. I'm sure Zack Snyder would be proud. And then the new MGS uh, theme kind of kicks in here, and it's really rocking. And of course, you recognize it as the podcast Sounds Frontiers opening theme song. So uh, we'll start getting into the Shagohad battle here, and Snake will fight, Eva drives, and this is where Snake says, I trust you to Eva, which immediately red flags, well, this is, this is going to go poorly <laughs> for you, Snake. Um, and you do get an R1 trigger sequence in here um, where you actually end up looking at Eva's eyes instead of her boobs or ass, which is a nice... A nice change and also, I think, supposed to be a sign of growth, both in terms of their relationship and all that. Um, but it's also, you know, what it is. And then, you know, you get a little kiss from Eva and she says, for luck, which is pretty much a straight up lift from Star Wars 1977. What? <laughs> Never heard of it. Not sure you were getting that from. So uh, the Shagohad battle, uh, two phases, not unlike the Vulgan one. Um, the first part, you are on a bike with Eva, so you still have infinite ammo. And then you're basically avoiding the Shagohad's weapons, which are basically a machine gun and missiles, and it trying to, you know, kind of ram you a little bit. And then to, you know, take it out, it's pretty much the same for both, but um, you basically have to shoot the treads out to paralyze the Shagohad. You have to use the RPG for this. And then after that, you have to hit it in the back panel, again, with the RPG. Um, so you, uh, what happens is you'll hit the treads on the Shagohad. It'll immobilize it for a little bit of time. And then you have to wait for Eva to kind of drive the motorcycle around back behind it. Uh, and then you can get some shots on the back panel, which is where its weak spot is. Jumping over to the second phase of the battle, um, after you seemingly immobilize the Shagohad, Volgan emerges from the top of it, and then he reaches down into the guts of it, essentially, pulls out the wiring, and basically starts charging and powering the Shagohad with his own electrical powers. At this point, you are on the ground. You'll jump off the bike while Eva drives around, kind of distracting uh, the Shagohad, which allows you to kind of move around and uh, basically kind of do the same tactic. But instead of shooting uh, the back of the Shagohad, now you're going to shoot at Volgan once you've immo immobilized it. Um, Eva has a health bar during this whole time. So if you absolutely just do jack shit, put on the best camo and go hide on the corner, um, Volgan will eventually just take her out and that'll be uh, game over for you. Uh, there are also uh, gun placements uh, on the map that you can actually get into kind of like there were on the mountain uh, earlier in the game. And you can use that to, you know, shoot at uh, Volgan. I, uh, I do not recommend them unless you're playing on very easy, though, on the easiest difficulty. I, I never use it, so I assume you're just a sitting duck. Yeah, like it, they're kind of like they're powerful, but he, he picks up once you hit him with it once, he just runs right at you and he'll do a lot more damage to you. So unless you're just trying to tank, uh, like you can tank a lot of damage at this point, I wouldn't use it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's definitely probably more meant to be a one off. You use it and then you kind of don't use it again in a given battle. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, the big change from the phase two, from the phase one of this battle was the fact that you're on foot now. So you have to do a little bit more to uh, avoid the Shagohod. You're obviously a lot slower. And, you know, uh, when you go in, if you're using um, like the RPG to take out the treads, um, you're not actually able to be mobile while doing that uh, when you're on the ground, unlike when you were on the bike where you were actually still driving when you were aiming with the RPG. Um, so my strategy, again, the non-lethal player, um, you have to use the RPG to stop the treads. And then I bust out the Mark 22 or the Mosin Nagant, um, and, you know, lay a couple rounds into Volgan. Um, both do pretty solid damage. I, I just don't know if the game doesn't expect you to go non-lethal on this battle. Um, but it really doesn't take very long to use the Mark 22 to take out Volgan. Um, how about you? How do you usually go about this? Uh, I did it not only through the one time, and I remember that, but I, I usually just shoot him. <laughs> usually with the uh, either the other sniper rifle, or I um, honestly, I was just running up on him and shooting with everything I had at that point. It was more fun to me. I think I threw grenades at him too. You can you can damage him basically anything you want. Yeah, aside from TQC, which would be which would be too cool. <laughs> they, they couldn't allow that. If say, snakes yeah. snake was TQCing the, the entire Shaggo HUD, it'd be too powerful. Oh, man. <laughs> Give it a suplex. That would be that. That's saved for another Metal Gear game. Oh God, it is. Oh, I, I assume. I think I know what you're talking about, even though I haven't played said game. Yes. When you get Volgan's health or stamina down to zero, we go to his final cutscene. A small spatter of rain gives way to a lightning bolt that strikes him dead center. Should have said Kuabara Kuabara. Volgan lights up as a man on fire, then starts popping off like fireworks. Snake and Eva embrace with all this happening in the background. A brief moment of unconditional victory. Brief, of course, is the operative word, as Ocelot and the remainder of Volgan's forces are once again in hot pursuit, and Snake and Eva begin their journey north to the WIG, which is a water, surface, plane, air thingy. I don't know. And of course, the boss is waiting for them there. So we have another segment of pod racing here, and my sneaking suspicion is that the actual distance covered in this escape is meant to get an accurately safe distance away from Groznygrad for upcoming events. So uh, describing these uh, chase sequence again, you're on the motorbike with Eva piloting. It's a uh, forested terrain or forested terrain instead of a uh, urban or fortress terrain of the earlier chase sequences. Um, it's raining during most of this, so visibility is pretty low. Um, so the thermal goggles can come in handy while uh, uh, executing this part of this game. There's a lot more elevation and uneven ground. Um, so the enemies are on different planes. And there are hovercrafts along with the bikes chasing you. Um, so that you know, you're know you definitely aiming all over the place and have to keep an eye out of your surroundings. Mm-hmm. Um, and this part specifically, but really like the entire bike sequence, is an homage to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I would say. It at least looks very similar. Yeah. And then I had already mentioned that if you throw on the Cold War camo and just kind of face the soldiers with your Russian, uh, you know, insignia, uh, they won't do much. They can't bear to fire on Mm -hmm. their beloved flag. The set piece ends with a crash, quite literally. Snake comes away from the wreckage okay, but Eva is impaled on a tree branch. She tells Snake to leave her to finish the mission, but Snake won't have it. I can't believe this. Uh Uh-huh. I never thought I'd see you act this week. What do you mean? Listen to me, Eva. We're doing this together. No, you... 
Eva, I need you. Say that one more time. I need you. I can't fly the wig by myself. <laughs> Snake helps Eva unpale herself, and he treats both their injuries before the final part of Operation Snake Eater, an escort mission to the lake and the boss. If you recall from our intro episode, you can actually take a peek of Eva's medical chart when she's nearby. You can also feed her at this distance, which you'll have to do to get through the next couple maps. So we have two escort maps here to break down between now and the end of the game. Uh, one thing I, I've highlighted earlier, but I love to highlight, is the fact that the best camo to use here is the Sorrows, which, again, I don't think has to do anything with the surroundings, but have to do with the upcoming climax of the story. Um, so I think that's just kind of a really cool uh, thing that's happening here. It's good to get the one last little... Actual, it's not even really a... I guess it's a stealth sequence. I always end up just tracking everyone. Mm -hmm. and moving on but it's nice because you you really need like you couldn't go straight from the shagahod fight to the boss fight i just that would not it, that'd be too i know that metal gear survives on tonal whiplash but that would be too, that's too much even for metal gear like two, it's two crescendos with very different di very different climaxes i think and I, you can't do that that's not how music works again you have to think of it musically you don't just go crescendo to crescendo mm -hmm. unless you're doing some weird avant-garde shit which i metal gear is slightly avant-garde but it's not yeah this game in particular is trying is trying to fulfill a sort of straightforward, like normal act structure, structure normal pacing. Agreed. And you really need you needed something here, so I'm really glad this exists, even if it's kind of an annoying spot. Mm -hmm. Like the second map in particular always annoys me, but you need something. It had to be something. Mm -hmm. Maybe it could have been something else, but it had to be something there. I'm glad it's this. I guess. Yeah, you you really do need to slow down, and ever since. Um, what's it called? You got into the Shagohot hangar. It's been basically boss fight, set piece, cutscene, boss fight. Um, it's it's been nonstop. So having these last couple stealth sequences, and I also love to reiterate this. I actually do love Metal Gear Solid for its stealth action. So anytime I get one last sequence to go through, even though this isn't like my favorite part of the game or my favorite maps, um, I you know I'll take it. Um, so. Uh, anyways, the, the first map, as Brian kind of described, is when you're kind of being tailed by soldiers. Um, this map, usually you can just kind of haul ass with Eva and then a couple tactical tranks or bullets um, behind you will pretty much do the trick. Um, if you're doing a lethal playthrough, I love to use the Claymore Mines here. I just kind of, you know, keep waving Eva along and then plant the Claymores. And then as I'm walking, I'll hear guys blowing up behind me. It's pretty solid. And then the second map is the more traditional um, enemy patrols. You just kind of have to sneak around them or just trank and spank like I like to do. Um, it's not great, but it, you know, yeah. it is what it is. And again, it's serving a bigger purpose in both the pacing of the game and the pacing of the story. Um, so it is what it is. And I think it's, it's, it's an important inclusion in the game structure. The forest eventually gives way to the lake and the wig there waiting. Eva preps her for takeoff while Snake turns to his final objective. Life's end, isn't it beautiful? It's almost tragic. When life ends, it gives off a final lingering aroma. Light is but a farewell gift from the darkness to those on their way to die. 
I've been waiting, Snake, for a long time. Waiting for your birth, your growth, and the finality of today. Boss. Why are you doing this? A nuclear blast provides the backdrop for our final showdown. The boss uses the second Davy Crockett to destroy Groznygrad, which includes the remnants of the Shagohad, the Cobra unit, and all evidence of what transpired here during this mission. And this will be our chance to deep dive into the boss, perhaps the crowning achievement of this masterpiece game. The boss, voiced by Lori Allen. The boss, or the Joy, or Voyevoda, which LBJ calls her in his call to Soviet Premier Khrushchev. Let's take those names backwards in escalating importance. Voyevoda translates to warlord. Also, there's an opera by Tchaikovsky of that name, and it's based on a play called The Voyevoda, A Dream on the Volga, which if you remember earlier, Volgin derives from Volga. But other than that, really odd link, I don't think there's anything else there. The Joy, of course, paints a more complex picture. Unlike her Cobra unit counterparts, the emotion she carries to the battlefield seems to be a positive one, one of elation. The all-white sneaking suit is a visual representation of this, seemingly. And if Snake is consuming or killing all the emotions of the Cobra unit, what does it mean for him to kill the Joy? And finally, there's the boss, which of course is the most foundational of video game jargon. Bosses and boss fights have always been a part of video games, and that's what Big Boss himself is a play on in the first place. But this story called for a boss that preceded Big Boss, so here we are. And much like Big Boss is a title to surpass a name itself, the same can be said for The Boss. The boss's gender cannot be denied either, of course. She's not only the mother of special forces, but she's mother to her cobras and to Snake figuratively, and mother to Ocelot biologically. It's also from her that the saga of Metal Gear is birthed, spinning out from the events of this game. If you remember Metal Gear as something that can be wrapped up in its hyper-masculine trappings, you can see the appeal, at least from Kojima's point of view, of having the genesis of it all be a woman. You can also think of this story as turning Genesis on its head with this and also Eva tempting the snake. I don't want to elide that we, again, are two dudes, and having a prominent woman character be so intricately tied to the concept of mother can reinforce patriarchal systems. This story does invoke trauma around pregnancy and motherhood, so it's not easy stuff either. Just for me, I think the story handles it well in that it fits with the message of what the boss is going to say, but if you do think it feeds into some of these tired tropes, I'd honestly want to hear from you. Podcastsonsfrontiers at gmail.com. I, I do wonder what 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 especially any particularly any women have to think of say about that about that particular part of her backstory because it's interesting but I'm not 100 percent sure it's done as well as it could be and I I would blame that almost entirely on Kojima being the world's most successful 13 year old boy. <laughs> the Joy's facial design is based on English actress Charlotte Rampling, who I don't really know from much. She did a lot of French and Italian cinema and also a couple American films. In Virtuous Mission, uh, the Joy is depicted in similar fatigues to Snake, but with a headband, which Snake will grab and inherit as his own look and pass down to his son, Solid Snake. Obviously, more notable is her stellar look in Operation Snake Eater. When not cloaked, Boss is depicted in an all-white sneaking suit with accents of gray. The idea is to invoke an astronaut suit to fit in with the game's original theme of space travel and the Boss's own space travel component in her fictional history. White, 
all racial connotations aside, traditionally in literature is associated with purity. Eh, maybe we can't leave aside those racial connotations. The boss, in a sense, is too pure, a true patriot, and we get to watch a system viciously take everything away from this untainted soul, leaving her empty and hollow. It could also symbolize the world of the past and the world of the philosophers, for the world is now going to descend into the age of Metal Gears and Patriots. Speaking of, the last aspect of her design I'll mention is her Patriot, a modified XM-16 rifle with a shortened barrel and stock removed. Snake acquires the more traditional model during the course of this game. It has twin circular cylinders for its magazine. Can I get an infinite ammo going in the group chat? Because you get the Patriot on subsequent playthroughs, and yes, it has infinite ammo. So diving into the boss's fictional history. Uh, she's the daughter of a philosopher, and in fact a philosopher on the Wiseman's Committee, the core decision makers of the philosophers on the whole. Her father would teach her all there was to know about the organization, and she would eventually go on to teach at a charm school, which is what they called the philosopher schools for their agents, uh, that kids like Eva would end up attending. She met Major Zero during the events of World War II, which is also when she would found the Cobra unit, and that's kind of where the Mother of Special Forces moniker comes from. Uh, we talked about this previously, but she landed on Normandy, gave birth to Ocelot with the sorrow being the father. Um, she was shot on the battlefield before giving birth, and Ocelot would be taken away from her um, after the C-section that resulted, and the C-section would leave a snake-shaped scar on her torso, and it would leave her unable to have any more children after this. And then um, the Cobras would end up being disbanded in 1947, the post-war times, where U.S. and Russia, Russian tensions started to increase. She participated in atomic testing in Nevada in 1951, which is something she has co common with Snake, who was present for the nuclear test at Bikini Atoll. Um, from there, she would go on to do Cold War espionage things, utilizing both her CIA and philosopher networks to complete her missions. She got involved with the Mercury Space Project as well, and there she would meet someone named Dr. Strangelove. And no, not Peter Sellers, um, but just keep that name in mind. Um, the story would be that she went into space on the same day as Yuri Gagarin in an effort for America to not fall behind in the space race with Russia. Um, and then in space, she would have her big pale blue dot moment, you know, realize we're all, you know, one world, one people, I think I heard somewhere. <laughs> the unfortunate tragedy, of course, was um, America wasn't ready for manned space flight, um, so they couldn't really protect her body from space radiation. And then when uh, her... Uh, spacecraft came back into the atmosphere, um, it would end up crashing and she would uh, end up being in a coma. And then from this point, she would never see uh, Dr. Strangelove again. And then, uh, you know, when she recovers, she'd go back, you know, to doing Cold War espionage stuff. Um, and this would eventually lead to the U.S. philosophers pitting, um, the U.S. philosophers pitting her against the sorrow who was being forwarded by the Russian philosophers, and the whole arrangement, as previously discussed, was one has to kill the other or their son, Ocelot, dies. Uh, you know, it's just the philosophers pulling the strings. But already here, before the events of Metal Gear Solid 3, we're seeing the whole one must live, one must die. I've never talked this much about myself before. Thanks. Thanks for listening to me. feel content. 
So getting into the boss's legacy real quick. So the first thing is she passes on her name to Big Boss. And, um, you know, Snake will spend much of the next decade contemplating his own legacy and her legacy and what exactly all happened here. And we'll talk about more about what actually happens here in the upcoming episode. Um, and then the Zero and Big Boss trying to interpret her legacy and more accurately her will will drive the narrative events of the story from here on out. And basically her brain and relationship to Strangelove will be a big part of the MGS Peace Walker story. So even though the boss only really appears in one game, um, her impact is re- pretty much felt both in all games coming, but then also can kind of fill in some blanks for games that preceded Metal Gear Solid 3. Yeah. So getting into some of the themes and concepts, I've already mentioned the see the world as one again, the pale blue dot thing, you know, one people, one world. Um, and if I really wanted to stretch it, you know, in in the eventual episode where we do Metal Gear Solid and Neon Genesis Evangelion, you know, they, they were trying to go for, you know, one people, one world in that show too, but in a very, 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 very different context. I think that's also just kind of a recurring theme in a lot of 90s not even just anime, but like a lot of nineties, like I said, it's post cold war. So there's a lot of world over the world over. There's a lot of uh, media that kind of had that weird theme kind of, I don't think it's a weird theme. It's a theme that was kind of pushed into things. Strangely, mm-hmm. it was just sort of an undercurrent, like a Jungian sort of spark of consciousness, I suppose is what I'm going for. But, um, it, it is also pretty prevalent in a lot of Japanese media in the nineties, except cowboy bebop, which is one of the things, one of the reasons that cowboy bebop felt so different when it came out was that it's a completely fractured and destroyed post-apocalyptic space world or the solar system is sort of littered with all these weird diasporas of different cultures that are just sort of slowly dying out. That's a much different kind of uh, tone, I think, than the the one world, one people sort of thing that, that is, very, is very much an Eva, like, you, like you're right to say that. But that's really the only time it comes up in Metal Gear mm-hmm. because Big Boss is very specifically like soldiers. Like it, his, his is about four soldiers specifically that... Civilians aren't really part of the equation for him or for, I guess, for the Patriots, but not for Zero. And for like, you know, it's, 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 they're war games for everywhere else. But mm-hmm. I guess four, I guess four has some of that. Coming up soon. Yeah. So, uh, and then the bigger, more explicit theme associated with the boss is the concept of the times and the, you know, ongoing, changing political, geopolitical, socioeconomic situations of, Everyone, everywhere, basically. It's about the impermanence of allies and enemies. And she would be talking about how the Cold War II would pass, which, of course, when this game came out was well after. It was over a decade after the Cold War officially ended. Yes, closer to 15 15 years. And, of course, um, this is also, you know, a reflection on the War on Terror, which was actually going on in the real world when this game was being written and uh, produced. Um, Because, you know, the War on Terror is very much about no absolute enemies. You know, the enemy can be anywhere and everywhere. So, you know, everywhere is a battleground at all times. And that justifies us bombing weddings um, because, you know, I'm sure, you know, they were going to do a terrorism or something, whatever the State Department says. And, you know, um, soldiers are always forced to play along with this. Um, and soldiers are first to, forced to turn on friends. And, you know, this kind of reiterate, you know, the boss says we have no tomorrow, which is actually something Solid Snake said a whole heck of a lot during the first two games, which I thought was kind of neat. Um, and, you know, soldiers aren't meant to attack friends is what the boss uh, you know, explicitly says in this point. 
And then her whole trip to space was just a real realization for her that, oh, space is just the next frontier for imperialism, um, which is the worst Star Trek uh, spinoff <laughs> that I ever thought up of. J.J. Abrams, Star Trek. That's what, that that's, what that's about. <laughs> Basically. So when she goes to space and realizes she's just part of another, you know, dick measuring contest between nations, she just realizes that it's another battleground for imperialism, no different than the uh, Eastern Bloc or, you know, Southeast Asia or Latin America. I mean, a lot of those conflicts weren't going on at the time in 1964, but she clearly identified that space was just the, ne the next part of this arms race or whatever you want to call it. And when she was in space, she, you know, had the revelation that we are that one people, one world. The Earth has no boundaries or, dare I say, sans frontieres. And with the last of the original philosophers dying in the 30s, she does note that their influence has basically informed everything that's transpired since. And basically, the philosophers have become war itself. And she describes the cycle of how the, sac the sacrifices of war leads to a shift in the times, which will eventually lead to the next war. And this gets into that snake eating itself, the Ouroboros of war and forever war. And she basically explicitly says, by consuming me and you, snake. And, you know, they are, they end up being pieces of this ongoing Ouroboros. And I think part of Big Boss's narrative arc in the Peace Walker and MGSV game is to try and break free of that. That's him wanting to fight the times and not be part of this never-ending machine. And then the last thing I want to note here is that the, the boss refers to the philosophers as both shapeless and nameless, which is very much how the Patriots were described in MGS2. There is nothing more for me to give you. All that's left for you to take is my life by your own hand. One must die and one must live. No victory, no defeat. The survivor will carry on the fight. It is our destiny. The one who survives will inherit the title of boss. And the one who inherits the title of boss will face an existence of endless battle. So now we can get into the boss fight, which has a 10-minute timer on it. MiGs are coming to blow this place to kingdom come. Uh, the battle starts in silence. Um, there's a lot of ambient noise and wind, but there's no score. Um, just the sounds of your footprints and whatever else is going on in nature. And about halfway through the battle, um, the main Snake Eater title theme song starts playing in the background. Um, this battle utilizes all systems in the game, and it almost feels like a culmination of this game's story and systems um, in a way that feels better than basically any other MGS final battle feels like. Um, whereas a lot of them tend to be one-off, like, you know, brawler or brawler fights or new mechanics being set up in the final battle um, using a katana, which, you know, you get right at the end of the game. This one rather feels like um, you can use what you had at the beginning of the game, the same mechanics. It feels the most integrated into the existing game as opposed to some kind of like special finale set piece kind of final battle. Um, the boss arena itself is a grove of white lilies. The white lilies are called Stars of Bethlehem. And it's a perfect match for boss's suit, which makes her, you know, kind of hard to see, uh, especially at a distance in this boss arena. And of course, the field has the same symbolism of purity as her suit um, being all white. So it's kind of like this is a pure battlefield. And then 
what will transpire with the snake with snake killing the boss will taint it or make it impure and when you do kill the boss um the white lilies uh, turn red there's also a, a dozen trees and a couple down logs um so there is a dynamic environment here it's not just the field so you can you know put your back to the trees you can crawl through logs all that kind of stuff and the fun uh fauna that's on this uh, map is that there are three snakes, each named Liquid, Solid, and Solidus. Um, while this is not their actual birthplace, you can say that the events of this game is what would birth the existence of these characters later in the chronology. That's one of the few explicit references that I actually don't like that much. It's just like, it's a little too cute, but it's one of the very few in this game that I actually have any problem with. So the boss's maneuvers here... Um, she'll charge you and try to CQC you. Um, she'll also use her Patriot um, to shoot you from across. And she'll also kind of stalk you and try to look for you. Um, and if you, you know, evade her for long enough, she'll, you know, kind of go out in the open. Um, like, where are you? So um, they're all like pretty strong, devastating attacks. Um, but she doesn't have like anything really beyond those things. In terms of uh, fighting back against her, um, you really kind of need to counter her CQC unless you're blowing her away with the shotgun. Um, when she comes up on you, um, what'll happen is on the lower difficulties, um, you'll see an exclamation point above Snake's head. At this point, if you hit the CQC button, you'll counter. On the higher difficulties, um, that exclamation mark is removed and you actually have to hear Snake grunt and that's your uh, indication to uh, hit the counter button. And then me otherwise playing non-lethally, I... You know, I mix up the Mark 22 and the Mosin Nagant, um, but I mostly rely on the CQC counters to uh, get her down. And then when she's down on the ground, I'll also pop her with the Mark 22 as well. Um, there have been times where I've run out of uh, Mark 22 ammo, so I've had to like drain the last of her life with stun grenades. Um, but that's usually how I go about this. Even when I haven't played um, like an entire non lethal playthrough, I often find myself using the Mark 22 in this battle for whatever reason. Um, it's pretty. It's a pretty solid weapon for this battle. Probably just your most fam your most familiar weapon. I um. I think honestly, I think the the easiest way to fight her lethally is to whenever you get a chance, get away and hide, or break you know break line of sight, and then wait for her to come out and search for you and just land her with, with sniper, just like go nuts because mm -hmm. it does so much damage. Um, like you said, you can use the shotgun. I did that when I got frustrated this time. Because she had like a, she got through a cycle where she just charged me for like 45 straight seconds. And I was like, please leave me alone. <laughs> and so I just started shooting at her with a shotgun. It doesn't do that much. And she gets right back up and is um almost invulnerable. I think she's invulnerable for a few seconds. But um yeah, CQC counters are always, you know, that's kind of the bread and butter of this fight. Like it should be. Um, stun grenades work for either way. You can stun a grenade and then get some shots in with whatever gun you have. Mm -hmm. I would not use the RPG under any circumstances, I guess. It's my. <laughs> Um, yeah. that's not going to go well for you is what I'll, what I'll say. I will say I did use the RPG or I tried to use the RPG the very first time I fought her. Cause I was, you know, kind of in the mentality of almost every other video game where you just use your more and more OP weapons as you get further and further into the game. Um, so the concept of, and I should have thought more, oh yeah, every MGS game ends with some kind of just like hand to hand combat thing. But, uh, I was like. I'm going to use my big weapons. And then I'm like, this really isn't working. And that's when I started going down. I think the first time I beat her with the, the lethal pistol, the M1, eleven mm -hmm. nine, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, what's it called now being, you know, the very pacifist person that I am in metal gear in real life. Um, the Mark 22 generally does the trick in terms of the firearm I use. 
I would also not recommend using the M16. You just don't have enough time to really accurately use it. You're just going to waste ammo. I mean, it doesn't matter if you waste ammo, I suppose. But Yeah. <laughs> and then if you defeat the boss uh, non-lethally, you'll get the snake camo, which is one of those just kind of all-purpose, very useful camos um, that, uh, what's it called, kind of has a really high index in almost any environment. It's very similar to the sneaking suit that you can get in the Grozny Grad lockers. And I think they had originally toyed with the idea of possibly getting uh, the Solid Snake blue sneaking suit at this point, or that be the secret camo. Um, but I believe that was uh, dropped in favor of this. Speaking of, though, you uh, you have to wear the black sneaking suit. I feel like that's almost a canon outfit to wear for this. Oh, yeah, I absolutely do that, at least for the last blow. I might do something, you know, to hide a little better during the... Um, actual fight but at the end i generally ch- i i can be kind of lame and i actually shouldn't say lame that's a little bit ableist but i am one of those losers who will um actually change my camo to look cool in the upcoming cutscenes because <laughs> i know when they're all coming now um so i always make sure like i use the janitor outfit to plant the c3 but i all sometimes i leave it on because it's funny seeing snake do uh cqc in the janitor outfit because it has kind of a built-in gut to it yeah um but usually I like to, like, before I plant the last C3, I'll put him into, like, a good camo for the upcoming fight with the boss and, you know, the talk with Volgan and Ocelot and all that. The battle ends with the boss on the ground and her handing the Philosopher's Legacy to Snace along with her Patriot. Jack. Or should I say, Snake. You're a wonderful man. Kill me. Kill me now. Do it. There's only room for one boss and one snake. The field of white lilies washes into blood red, and the boss's horse arrives to mourn her. There's a secret R1 here, too. You can see the force ghosts of the sorrow and the boss reunited at last. Anyway, I'm too sad to get into the postscript of this game now, so we'll call that mission complete for this episode. It is it is interesting that Snake refers to himself as Jack Skywalker, though, at the end. I thought that was an odd, odd choice for them to make. Our frequency is podcastsoundsfrontieras <laughs> at gmail.com and at podsandsfront on Twitter and Instagram.com. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Brian. We're men with names who are not supposed to reference the last, the, the last, the Rise of Skywalker. See, I forgot what the movie's called. It sucks. It's a bad movie. <laughs> it's one of the worst. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, you have a way to fall. Son, you've got a way to fall. They'll tell you where to go, but they won't.
The Boss, voiced by Lori Allen. Well, The Boss, or The Joy, or Voyovoda, which LBJ calls her in his call to Soviet... Uh, Let me start all of that over again. (laughs) So The Boss is voiced by Lori Allen. The Boss, or The Joy, or Voyevoda, which LBG call... LBG. LBG. <laughs> oh, God, Lundin now Bader I'm like Ginsburg. a turf. <laughs> or that. Um, all right. Third time's a charm. <laughs> the, bo- <laughs> the Boss, voiced by Lori Allen. 